0: If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have one or need to borrow one from us, you are more than welcome to do that in the pocket of the pew in front of you. You can find Matthew chapter 12 on page 766 of that black ESV Bible. Anyone who's lived for more than 10 seconds in this world knows that this world has got a lot of stuff to fight about, politics and doctrine and sports about morality We have no lack of things to debate, no lack of things to complain about, no lack of controversies to engage in. Yet, even with all of these available, and and even at times necessary controversies, we are warned to be people who are slow and careful to enter into it. There's a number of people who have pulpits and pens, who have TikTok accounts, Twitter accounts who are willing to engage with any controversy that they can even smell from miles away. After all, nothing drives up clicks and views. Nothing drives up money for those people quite like controversy. The making of money and fame as pursued is pursued as the real end, not the building up of the church. This is not to be who we are. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6, where he says, "If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions." It's without a doubt that that sort of unhealthy craving is amongst many today whether they are simply the intakers of such controversy, not even those who publish it, but just want to have it fed to them, or they are the ones who are feeding that particular sense of controversy. We are to be slow to enter into such things. That being said, there are times when we cannot avoid these things. It is necessary to enter into them. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been largely unopposed by any of his enemies. There have been pointed questions. The Lowering down of the paralytic and Jesus telling him that your sins are forgiven elicited a response from the scribes and they said, isn't this blasphemy or he's blaspheming by doing this? The Pharisees had questions about why this man of God was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And yet, even though there were questions for Jesus, none of those questions blossomed into anything. We have a question asked by each of those groups, a response given, and then Nothing. No lingering controversy, no flaring up of wrath and anger and contention, none of it. And that is about to change. The controversy that starts here in chapter 12 will escalate at an alarming rate, not only within chapter 12, which it does, but then even up until the ending of Jesus' life at his crucifixion. Nevertheless, what we find is that Jesus because of the nature of this controversy which we will talk about has no option but to engage in it because to not engage in it is to condemn the people who stand before him Matthew is here writing not to provoke us to engage in controversy but to help us see the kind of controversies maybe that we should engage in but also see the importance of what the whole controversy in Matthew chapter 12 is about I hope that we can learn much from it about not only doctrine, but the way in which we practice that doctrine. Read with me, if you will, from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Here, the word of our God says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Well, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? Who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is man than sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy This is the word of our God. This morning, I'd like to bring forward just two things for your consideration. The first being good doctrine, simply good doctrine. Before we get to the the meat of this controversy, we need to talk about what the controversy is really about. It's quite possible for a number of people, not only in here, but around the church, anyone who opens the passage of Matthew chapter 12 and begins to read for their daily devotion to hear that it's about the Sabbath. To understand that Jesus is talking about this one special day that the Jews had set aside and to realize that we don't talk about the Sabbath quite the way they do. To read through this passage and to come to the conclusion that the meat here is just the fact that Jesus is setting aside the Sabbath as completed or as different now or that we handle it in sort of a different manner than the Jews did and to really think no more of it than that. After all, most Christians, I I don't think really understand what the Sabbath is or how to deal with it. This includes Southern Baptists, especially LifeWay, uh, our sort of research arm of LifeWay and the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, back in 2015, held a study in which they found that of church-going people, and I'm not sure exactly how they define that, maybe people who went on average once a week to religious services, um, church-going Christians... 79% of those people said that they take a weekly Sabbath rest and they do that by going to a worship service. Now, I'm going to assume that the vast majority of that 79% do not go to a Saturday service because that's when the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is not the Lord's day, and there is nothing in the New Testament that declares that the Sabbath has just been, like, bumped up a day to Sunday. Or actually, it's not bumped up a day, bumped back six days to Sunday. That's not what's happened. The Sabbath is the last day of the week. That's Saturday. That has never changed. So, Lifeway doesn't even know how to ask the question correctly. That's how lost we are. And it doesn't seem like anybody, like, corrected them. So, this is not... A time when we come to this and say, "Well, we handle Sundays a little bit differently." No, you don't handle Sunday. The, the the holy day of the week, the Sabbath, as it were, was Saturday. This is why, because it's holy and set aside. They play college football on Saturday, right? Because it's not joking. So we don't know how to handle the Sabbath well, anyways. But even if we did, this controversy. Because we think of the Sabbath wrongly, we come to this and think that it's just supporting our conclusions about the Sabbath. But even in Jesus' response, he makes it clear that it's about much more than just the Sabbath. In our passage, Jesus has the Pharisees approach him because his disciples are plucking and eating the grain on the Sabbath. They're walking along, they're popping the heads off the grain, and they're eating them. And the Pharisees look at him and say, hey, that be work. It might be an incredibly small amount of work. It might be a meaningless amount of work, but that's not the point. The point is that that is work, and they shouldn't be doing it. And you'll notice they go to Jesus, and they don't go to the disciples with this problem because Jesus obviously saw him. He's their teacher. He's their rabbi. It's his responsibility, really. And so they're, they're kind of asking him, why is it that you're allowing this to happen? They see and they know that he approves. Now, as a side note, just to talk about the larger sort of scope of Matthew at this point, I want to draw your attention to something. When Jesus sent his disciples out on mission, he gave this long, exaggerated, uh, exaggeratedly long, I think, uh, discourse on the persecution and oppression that they were going to face as they went out. And he warned them about the, the fact that people were going to haul them before uh, the the state, and they were going to haul them before princes and principalities, and they were going to be judged and oppressed and maybe even killed, and Jesus puts this forward before them. But Matthew doesn't tell us anything about that stuff happening to the disciples. He never mentions any of it happening to them. Jesus talks about it like it was a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen, and Matthew says nothing about it happening. The only person that comes out of that, entering into persecution at all, is Jesus. It's almost like Matthew is saying somewhat coyly, Jesus suffers in their place. The very suffering that was to go to the disciples doesn't go to them, but instead comes upon Jesus. Even here, the problem is with them breaking the Sabbath, not with Jesus breaking the Sabbath. Nevertheless, Jesus seems ready and willing to answer this question, and so he responds with three particular examples from the Old Testament. The first is David. The David example is very strange. David, at this point in time, was running from Saul, hiding in caves, And anyone who's ever been on the Lamb, I don't speak from experience, I wasn't holding anything from you guys, but if you've been on the Lamb, as far as I can tell from television, uh, it means that finding food and water and shelter and the provisions of life are much, much more hard to come upon. And certainly that was true for David. And so David, even though he's been helped by Jonathan at this point in time, he goes to the city of Nob and he goes to Ahimelech, who is the priest there, and he asks him, listen, do you have any food at all? And Ahimelech says, well, yeah, we've got the bread of the presence." And David says, okay, that'll work. And David takes it. Now, it's interesting that Jesus reports that particular story. And there's really, there's more to it than that, especially the ending of the story. But at least as far as what Jesus is concerned about, that's the end of the story. David is hungry. He takes food that is not lawful for him. And it's interesting that Jesus points out he did what was not lawful. Those are the words that Jesus has. He says in verse four, he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat. And so what is the point that Jesus is trying to make? Is Jesus trying to say like, hey, David did something that wasn't lawful, so it's probably okay that we do something that's unlawful. Well, it's unlikely then that he's trying to say that. There's two things that I think the Pharisees and Jesus probably agree with here, or at least one thing, or two things that I'm going to say that I think the Pharisees are thinking. One, they're unlikely to throw David under the bus. They don't think that David has done wrong. Jesus doesn't think that David has done wrong. The disciples don't think that David has done wrong in this business. It's very rare that the Old Testament just comes out and tells us when someone does something that's sinful. When it does that, it means to highlight that sin and to say, this is really, really bad. But Even so, as we go throughout the scriptures and we read that particular incident, there's nothing in the writing of 1 Samuel that makes it seem like David did wrong there at all. And so what Jesus is saying is it might be against the law, but no one here thinks that it's wrong. Secondly, they probably would have looked at this and been like, well, David did do that. But we would think that David was very, very near to death and starvation and fatigue. And if he gets fatigued and and he starts losing energy and he can't move as he needs to, Saul's going to catch up with him and kill him. And so this was a necessary thing. And your disciples, they're not in the same position. I think Jesus' point is, so what? The point is that you and I both know that when you come to read the law, You don't read it with a literal rigorness that you need to be able to come up and say that David's done wrong here. You know that there are exceptions. I know that there are exceptions. The question is where those exceptions fall, which brings us up to the second point, which is the temple. Here, we have this problem of two commands that come into direct confrontation with one another. The temple was obviously where offerings and sacrifices were going to be made and to be made in worship. These were done at various times, and various sacrifices were made in worship, but nevertheless they were to be made in the temple. And in Numbers 28, this is one of the, the examples that we have, we have the, the mark by God, the word of God telling us that these need to be done on the Sabbath. So in Numbers 28, verse 9, Moses writes that on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So if the offering is to be made on the Sabbath, the priests need to be working on the Sabbath. And so you've got a problem. You've got, got... two things that are in, in complete conflict with one another. Either you can place the Sabbath regulations aside and allow the temple to do its work, or you can put the temple's work aside and uphold the Sabbath, but you can't do both. So Jesus says, don't you know that quite clearly the temple regulations are more important because God tells us to have the priest do work on the Sabbath. So even in God's understanding, there are weightier matters of the law, more important matters of the law, and lesser matters of the law. If we have two conflicting things, we have to figure out which one is more important. And for the word of God, it's quite clear, the temple is more important. This allows Jesus to sort of drop the hammer, as it were. And he says, you are concerned about the keeping of the Sabbath, but you're not in the temple, but I've got news for you. Something greater the temple is here. Whether you think that Jesus is talking about himself directly or about the coming kingdom of God, doesn't matter. The coming kingdom of God comes because of Jesus and he's talking about himself in some way. He is the one who is greater than the temple. Let's remember what the temple and the Sabbath was there for. The Sabbath was meant to be the sort of living picture of man's final state. That's why it comes at the end of the week. of of God's people, the rest that he was going to give them. This final state was not defined by the sort of laborious work that, that was a result of the fall, but rather by rest, the putting down of that work, of the enjoying of the gifts of God. This is the reminder of the Sabbath. Every week, the people were to be reminded that God will one day provide all that we need, and we will one day rest in him. The temple does much the same. The temple is a picture of Eden. It looks backward to a time before the fall while pointing forward to the time when that would be the case. It itself is something of a new creation. It's filled with this Edenic symbolism, the symbolism of, of Eden, the picture of Eden. It's carved with almonds and flowers. It's got angels everywhere the place where God and man meet. More important than the Sabbath was the temple because the temple didn't just show what the end of God's people was to be. It showed them how they would get there. It showed them that it's through sacrifice, through a lamb's blood, that God would bring about the good and right rest of his people in perfection and in joy. Jesus then is greater than both because he doesn't merely show what the end is going to be or how the end is going to be, but is the creator of that reality himself. He's bringing the final purpose of God into being. The kingdom itself, filled with perfection and rest and wholeness and peace, comes because Jesus Christ is here. And the Pharisees ought to have known. They ought to have known for the same reason that that John had the answer given to him by Jesus. Are you the one who was to come, or should we await another? And Jesus' response to him is, go tell him. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Go tell him that the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, what they ought to see is that the work of the temple is to bring about perfection. It's to end the curse of the fall. And Jesus is literally going out and doing that. He's reversing death. He's reversing the the very limitations of human flesh. He's restoring people back to a better state. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the Sabbath and the temple and his work. He is greater than the temple. Third response comes from a quote from Hosea. If there was a pinnacle verse that was to define the difference between the work that Jesus is doing and how he conceives of the work that he is doing and what the Pharisees didn't understand, it must be this passage from Hosea. This is the second time that Jesus has quoted this. He did it the first time when the Pharisees asked him, Why are you a friend of tax collectors and sinners? And he said, Haven't you read? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The point that Hosea is making is very simple, but let's, let's make it a little bit more forceful by looking at the translation. And the translation, I don't mean the translation to English. The, the Greek to English here is perfect. There's not much you can improve upon. The thing we want to concern ourselves with is what the Greek says about the Hebrew, because the Hebrew has slightly different emphasis in it. When we hear the word desire, we are in the realm of wants. We, we think that it, it's simply a declaring of what somebody wills into existence. And if we ponder it a lot, we would say that that has something to do with desire or something to do with pleasure even. But that's sort of further down the road. The, the word, you know, when he, when he specifically says, I desire mercy, it doesn't sound like it has much to do with, with pleasure or delight. But the Hebrew word has a lot to do with pleasure and delight. It's it's not just talking about something that you want to have happen, it's talking about something that you honestly desire, that you honestly delight in having happen, a pleasure in happening. Something like Isaiah 11, where the same word is used, is translated a little bit differently, and I think maybe a little bit better. Isaiah 11, same sort of context. Isaiah says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. That is, I think, what Jesus is telling here is, again, focused on the pleasure of God, the joy of God. Even as he said last week, it is, it is God's pleasure to reveal these things to little children and not to the wise and understanding. Here, his pleasure is in mercy. And that brings us up to that question of what is mercy? The Greek word here just means mercy. It's pretty synonymous with the English word. The Hebrew word, though, is that famous Hebrew word, "hesed," which means a plethora of things. Covenant faithfulness. It means loving kindness. It means mercy. It means love. It is, a, it is a word that sort of summarizes God's attitude toward his people, that he loves to keep his promises to his people because he loves his people. Why does God continually forgive his people? Why does God continually have mercy toward them? Why is he always showing them kindness and goodness? It's because he has hased, because he cares about what he has promised them, and he loves them. He takes pleasure in doing good to them. Not in simple sacrifice. In other words, what is more important to God is what He does for us, not what we do for Him. And in that simple designation, honestly, we see the real problem that the Pharisees are going to have, and, and we have, throughout the entirety of the New Testament. The problem is that we don't understand who God is. The problem here is not really, in the end, about the Sabbath. It's not about what day you're allowed to take off and, and the definition of what work is. That's not the problem. The problem is an understanding of God himself. This is why Jesus must engage in this, because they don't understand who God is. They they fundamentally don't understand who he is. They see the law functioning as a tool for us to please God, a way for us to come right with God, something that we offer in obedience to God, but Jesus, I don't think, sees it that way. Rather, he sees the law as a gift from God for good. He sees it as a gift for us to help us, to do right by us. To make us flourish in this world, to give us direction and aid. The competing understandings of God Himself in this are very clear. Jesus sees God as a God of gift, He is a God who gives, He's a God who cares, He's a God who loves. The Pharisees see God as a God of demand, He is a God who requires. He is a God of standards and of judgment of right and wrong, and therefore they treat the law the same way. We've got to be careful. It's not that the Pharisees are wrong, that these things are present in God. They make the mistake in placing the major for the minor. How do you define who you are? I, you can define who I am. Define me by the fact that I'm a pastor. I'm a husband, I'm a father. I'm a college football fan, apparently. I'm a hater. If you wanted to do negatively, I'm a hater of peaches. This is fine. All those things are true, but none of those things are who I am. In the in the end, they they don't they they can be true statements, but not actually hit at the center of what I am. I most centrally i am a Christian, somebody who has been redeemed by the blood of my Lord. Does that mean I'm not a pastor? No, I'm, I'm a pastor. It's who I am. But being a pastor does not define who I am. Being a husband doesn't define who I am. If my wife were to die, Lord, hopefully not. If my wife were to die, I would not cease to be myself. I might lose something would lose a great thing, but I, I wouldn't stop being who I am. If Jesus was shown to have not gotten up out of that grave, I would be not who I am. So who is God? Is God fundamentally in the center of who he is? A God of gift and giving, of kindness, of mercy, who even in the law seeks. To do good to us. Or is God a God of demands? Who is righteous and wrathful and angry and frustrated? Who does nothing but show that with the way he punishes men and women for their trifle little problems that they have in life? Two distinct ways of thinking about God that are not compatible at all. That only find their flaring point in this little thing called the Sabbath. Not because it is the most important issue, but because it is simply the one that causes ignition. The outcome of all of this is a necessarily misplaced theology, which leads to a wrong understanding of what we ought to do. Which brings us to our second point, which is good deeds. We have good doctrine, we will get good deeds. We have bad doctrine, we will get bad deeds. He goes on from there and he enters into their synagogue. Now there's a word in the KJV which would come through, which they always translated, but a number of of modern English translations drop because it just becomes sort of overbearing. It doesn't do anything in English. It's the word behold. And so Matthew would say, he went on from there and entered in their synagogue and behold, a man was there with a withered hand. They, They are happy to see the man with the withered hand there because they want to accuse Jesus. They, they, just wrap your mind around this, they want him to heal the man. They believe he can heal the man and they want him to do it so that they can call him evil, right? So again, humans led by emotions, not by rational thought. They're trying to accuse him. They're so, somehow like, they're, they're glad, it's almost like they've spun a trap on him. But it's not, like, it's not like 3D chess or anything. It's the kind of trap where you're like, hey, I bet you won't lick that frozen pole outside, right? Like it's a double dog dare you kind of thing because they look at him and they're like, hey, here's a man with a withered hand. You gonna heal him on the Sabbath? But the deal is I, I like that word behold here because the trap and the accusation isn't on Jesus. Jesus has placed it there for them because he's gonna accuse them. It's almost like <clears throat> It's almost like Matthew is saying, "Well, wouldn't you know it? They walked into a synagogue and who was there, but a man with a withered hand. I wonder what's going to happen now." What happens is, obviously, this non-life threatening injury, which is obviously not life threatening. It, it it could have been put off for the next day. It would have cost this man an incredibly small amount to wait seven or eight hours until the Sabbath was over for Jesus to heal him. 6 p.m. on that day, Jesus could have healed him. No one would have cared. Nothing would have happened. The Pharisees would have been happy. The man would have been happy. He would have had both hands working again. Everything would have been great. Literally no skin off his back and it would have saved Jesus a bunch of trouble. It shows just how important this was to Jesus. He, asks a straightforward question. Whether he's talking to all of the people who are there, specifically to the Pharisees, doesn't really matter. If you have a sheep falls into a pit, what are you going to do? Now regardless of how the Pharisees answer that, I guarantee you how everyone else answers that. They would have said, "Well, I would have looked left, I would have looked right, made sure that no Pharisee saw me, and I'm getting into the pit and getting my sheep out. And the Pharisees might maybe are going to stand on their principle and say, I wouldn't have done that. But Jesus, is the way he says it, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you would have gone in and gotten your sheep. The point is that everyone knows that you're going to go and get it out. I think that he's talking to all of the other people there and I think he's saying, these people understand the Sabbath better than you do because they would go in and get their sheep. Because the people understand that the Sabbath is needs to be understood in terms of the world that you're facing. And you are allowed to do good in the world. This isn't even an interesting conclusion, honestly. The question, are you, are you allowed to do good on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering it, yes, you're allowed to do good on the Sabbath, is not an interesting conclusion at all. It's just not. The fact that he heals the man, not interesting at all. Other than the fact that it's a miracle, Jesus has done a lot of miracles, right? Right? And, and this man with a withered hand isn't the worst of the people that he has healed. What is interesting is to show what kind of God he is, that Jesus has to do this. And the kind of leaders who are there would rather this man suffer for another couple of hours than just relieve him then. It's a demonstration of the depravity of our sin. That our sin can take a good law which has been given to us and completely turn it for the use of evil. The Sabbath regulations are notoriously vague. Scriptures basically tell us that we're not allowed to work, and all the Jewish problems with this particular thing is the fact that it's vague. What does it mean to not work? I mean, I think that we would look at people plucking the heads of grain and not call that work the Jews didn't know how to define it. They wanted to keep the law. They they needed to keep the law because God was a God of demand. He was a God who necessitated obedience from his people and therefore we've got to really define accurately what work is. But it's vague. What does the commandment actually say? Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And when you read that, you are very clearly pushed to the conclusion that it isn't just for you, but that it is for those who have others who can work around them that you are to guarantee their well-being as well and their rest as well. You can't say, well, the Lord has called me to rest, so son, go do labor for me. Six days, I will make my son do everything that I want him to do. But there's one day you can't do that, and that's on the Sabbath, right? And so it is, it is a way for the powerful to not abuse those who are under them, to show that there will be a day when everyone in equality will take their rest. The Pharisees have changed this good thing into an absolute burden for people. They have changed what was meant to be a rest and a kindness and a goodness of God demonstrated through the law into nothing but a crushing burden. And again, the real problem here has nothing to do with the healing of Jesus. Up to this point, the Pharisees have uttered and mumbled nothing about the teaching of Jesus or the healing of Jesus. Nothing. They have no problem with him healing. They have no problem with him giving sight back or healing withered hands. They've got no problems with his teaching so far. They have none of it. Again, they enter into this entire discussion thinking that Jesus is going to heal the man. Their whole plan relies on Jesus healing the man. What a small thing this seems to be. This isn't a matter of Jesus doing something, it's a matter of when Jesus does something. It's a matter of hours. The matter of hours is the difference between Pharisees' approval of Jesus and their condemnation of Jesus. Why? Because in those hours, however many they might be, nine, ten, three, five, in between those hours, lies the insurmountable gulf in the difference between who God is and who they make him out to be. They would steadfastly refuse to do good for this man simply because God demands that they don't because they don't know God. our theology matters because it affects our practice. Where our doctrine is bad, our deeds will necessarily be wrong and skewed. And where our deeds are wrong, so will be our doctrine. It is a circular problem. Our doctrine impacts those things that we see as good and right and true, which then clarify our, not only our deeds show what we think are good and true, which then impacts our doctrine, which then tells us what is good and right and true, and we just get on the same path. That's what the Pharisees have done. For instance, if, if here the Pharisees are willing to postpone good because of doctrine, you might say, well, how are we supposed to define what is good? Jesus says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, then it's always lawful to do good. When, when are we supposed to do good? What does doing good mean? Many think in our day and age that we are to define what is good based on our feelings and emotions. And so they come to the conclusion that to do good is just to affirm people. To affirm, especially when it comes to issues around sex, to affirm sexual matters of LGBTQ, to affirm the sort of normalcy of fornication in our day and age, this is what it means to do good to people. You do good simply by affirming them. But again, your doctrine of what is good affects your practice of what is good and then your practice of what is good reestablishes your doctrine. Notice how far this misreading takes them. It's like one of those little sponge eggs that you, th- they're just small and you throw them in the bath for your kids and the, the egg dissolves and then all of a sudden the dinosaur pops out and it grows and there's no more water in the bath, right? It just sucks up all of it. This this goes from this quaint little discussion of disciples picking heads of grain on the sabbath. It's like a half a calorie per grain. Them picking grains on the sabbath and Jesus healing a man leads to the Pharisees wanting to destroy him. It grows so fast and so quickly. Friends, we serve a God who is more loving, kind, and generous, and gracious than anyone in here can possibly understand. No matter how much you think you understand of God's forgiveness over you, no matter how much you think you have experienced of his mercy, you know almost nothing of it. To say it's like an iceberg where 90% of it's underneath and and you've only seen 10% of it is not not even close. Once you see how good and perfect he is, and you see truly how wicked your sin has been, you will then begin to have a faint inkling of how much he has been merciful and kind to you. God has taken the great affront of our sin and by laying down his own life for yours, has thrown it, as we say, into a sea without bottom or shore. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west, from both you and from himself, So effective is this sacrifice. A sacrifice, by the way, that you do not give. But a sacrifice that God gives for you. The very God who sees all of you as you truly are. Who knows the very bottoms of your hearts and every idle word that you've ever spoken. Every thought that was so vile that not only should you not have thought it, but even you know better than to speak it out loud. God sees all of those things. And so effective is a sacrifice that he will speak of you only as holy and righteous and beloved. And what's more, as sacrifice holds out for all of us, the very wholeness that Jesus provides for that man, that while wretched and broken, he will one day make us whole again. The works that that God then gives to us are not duties and labors that we are forced to do. They are themselves gifts. Opportunities to display the love of Christ to a dying world. To speak of the just immense love that has been shown to us. Psalm 1968 says that God is good and does good. Because God is good, he does that which is good, and he only does that which is good for us. Whether it is in the giving of the law, whether it is in difficult mercies that he shows to us, whether it is leading us to repentance, regardless of what it is, he does good to us for our good. Therefore, we are to act as those who have been remade, as those who have been bought by the very blood of Christ to do good to others. Not because God demands it, but because God provides for us to do so, because he is kind to give us an opportunity to do so. We act out of love for him because we know who he is, we know what he does, so we know who we are, and we act as we do. Good doctrine leads to good deeds. Let us pray. Our gracious and mighty God, your goodness to us is evident and abounding. And although we are unworthy of any favor at all, you have poured out upon us blessing and goodness, grace and mercy in your Son, Jesus Christ. Let the greatness of this mercy change us for good. Allow us to pursue as ours the very same mercy and goodness that has been displayed for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord whose name is to be praised forever and ever as worthy and good and righteous and true as merciful and loving we ask these things for our good and for your glory amen let us